Please stand for the reading of God's word. From Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he, he may send you the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and to those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Good job. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here. And for those of you who are with us on the live stream, welcome. If you haven't been tracking with us, we've been going through the book of Acts as part of a larger series on the, what God is doing to redeem the world. Um, and some of you might know the longer title of Acts, uh, which Irenaeus gave to the book, which is the Acts of the Apostles. Um, but I have some other ideas for titles, so I want to give you a couple. Uh, 
I think we can think about Acts 2, because remember at the beginning of Acts, it says that this kind of tells us the story of everything that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And so in some ways, Acts is the continuation of what Jesus is doing uh, from his ascended throne. So we could call Acts, we could title it, The Acts of the Ascended Lord Jesus Through His Body on Earth, the Church. It's a little long. Um, another title you might have heard before for the book of Acts is The Acts of the Spirit of God. The Acts of the Spirit of God and how he began the Jesus movement. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at that. We're going to be looking at how the Spirit of God empowers the church, sometimes in exceptional ways, and how we can be a church that's in line with what the Spirit is doing in the world. So let me pray for our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've brought us to a new season as a church family. We thank you for the blessings you've given us over the past year. Father, I know there's a lot of people out here who are hurting, who have grieved in many ways this last year. But Lord, we're also joyful to be gathered again. Father, we pray that your spirit would be moving and among us, that your spirit would be at work and convicting and shaping hearts inspiring us towards the works you would have us do in the world. It's in Jesus' name that we can ask these things. Amen. In 1857, Jeremiah Lanfier, a 49-year-old, newly minted minister, decided that he was going to start a one-hour prayer meeting for troubled businessmen in New York City. It was a time of economic tension and political tension. And so Jeremiah thought he'd give it a shot. He felt like the Lord was leading him to do it. And so he put up some flyers around the city. It said, meet at noon at this location. We're going to have a prayer meeting. Bring a friend. And the first meeting he held, he sat alone for 30 minutes by himself in the room. Oh. Uh, and then near the end of the meeting, a few men joined him. So there was five people at the first meeting. And those few men spread the word to a couple more. And so then the next week, there was actually 20 people that came to the meeting. And then the week after that, there was 40 people who came to the meeting. And then in October, the meeting switched from being weekly to daily. And then by January of 1858, they had to use a second room. And then in February, they had to bring in a third location. And then by March, there was 20 noon prayer meetings held throughout the city. They even started using one of the big theaters that could seat 3,000 people. And by the end of March, every church in downtown New York City and every public hall was filled to capacity. And 10,000 men were gathering every day for prayer. And as a result of these times of prayer, the men began being more zealous for evangelistic outreach. They poured uh, out of the church and into the streets and started sharing their faith. And they would bring lost friends to the prayer meetings, and they would be saved, and the new converts would then share with other people what God was doing. And through this movement, thousands of people became Christians in our country. In other words, God empowered a simple effort by a, an ordinary person, and then all of a sudden, revival broke out. I've been reading about revival this week, and I like this other comment I read from the Welsh Revival of 1904, 
says, during the revival, the police were left with virtually nothing to do. The courts were empty. The saloons and bars were shut down for lack of business. Public drunkenness was almost non-existent, which is pretty good for Wales, if you're familiar with Welsh culture. <laughs> Old debts that had been long forgotten were paid off in full. So throughout the history of the church, God's people have experienced seasons where God moves in a unique and powerful way. And we've named these moments revival, which is a way of describing this new life and exceptional work of God. So what is, what is a revival? Let me give you a little bit of a different definition. I want to refine, define revival this morning as something that the Spirit of God achieves rapidly among his people, which the Bible calls us to work towards steadily. So it's an intensification or a rapid achievement of the mission of the church. So you see rapid repentance and rapid sanctification, and the Spirit moves in power and knocks down walls in people's lives that would have taken years otherwise to fall. You could almost picture it like a sailboat, where the church is the sailboat, and it's heading in a direction towards the mission that God has called the church to. And then we raise up sails to move towards the mission. And the sails that we raise up are the God-ordained efforts that he's commanded us to do as a church. So we have the boat. We're going somewhere. We put up sails to try to get there. Revival, then, is like a gale forest wind that blows the boat and launches it towards its destination rapidly. And sometimes the Spirit of God moves like this among God's people. And throughout the history of the church, there have been seasons where God has done this, just like in New York City in 1857 or in Wales in 1904. And just like he's doing here in the book of Acts in chapters 2 and 3. In fact, Pentecost in this early era of the church is the revival par excellence. It's the revival of all revivals. But again, don't think of revival as something different that the church does. It's not a different goal. It's a season of God empowering the goals that we already have. So it would be wrong to picture the Christian life as normally we sit in the pew and we wait and sometimes there's revival and we go about the mission of God. So then we evangelize or then we have prayer meetings or we sacrificially give. No, we're always called to be doing those things and sometimes God, the Spirit, comes alongside and blesses our effort in a unique and powerful way. And revival happens when God chooses for it to happen. We can't control it. We can pray for it, and we can ask for it, but we can't control it. As Jesus says uh, about the Spirit of God in John chapter 3, he says, the wind blows where it will, and so it is with the Spirit. So revival comes from God in his sovereign work. Later in that same chapter, John will say, of Jesus, that the Spirit was poured upon him without measure. And that means that Jesus moved through the world with the full outpouring of the Spirit on his life. And so Jesus was a walking revival. And that kind of points us to one last piece when we think about revival. The true mark of revival in the church or in the body of Christ is that we start looking a lot more like Jesus. And then in contrast, when some of you hear revival, a totally different image comes to mind. 
Some of you might picture a sweaty summer evening where you would go to a three-day revival service. Anybody? Where the guest preacher was intense, and he'd try to get to your emotions, and then there'd be a prolonged altar call at the end where people would pledge to live differently, which would last, if you're like me, a couple weeks, and then you'd go back to normal, right? And you'd do it again next year. And, or maybe some of you think of, when you think of revival, you think of a smoke machine style worship service where the mark of success is just based on the emotional response that you can get out of people. And instead of revival, we should call these efforts revivalism, which could be described as pursuing the appearance of the Spirit and His work with or without Him, right? So if God wants to do the work, then great, but if He doesn't, I've got a smoke machine and I know how to make you cry, so we're going to be okay. That's revivalism. Uh, Famously, Charles Finney, who was one of the preachers of the Second Great Awakening, said that a revival was not a miracle, but a change of mindset. And so it became a technique where you could bring about certain responses out of people. And the danger of revivalism, then, is that the church loses the focus on the mission of God, where the boat is heading, and it gets distracted, trying to pursue an experience, trying to pursue an experience pursue and experience. And so it's a really great thing to pray for revival. We should all pray for revival. It's a really great thing to experience emotion when we worship and when God moves in our hearts. But we're not called to chase the experience. We're called to pursue the mission that God has called us to. And so this morning, I want us to look at four things that the early church was pursuing, the mission it was pursuing, the four sails on the ship, if that makes sense to you. And where the Spirit blew and empowered these to bring about this revival moment in the early church in the beginning of the story of Acts. And then I want us to think about how these things apply to us and the mission God has called us to. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to give you all four up front, and then we're going to go through them one at a time. The church in Acts was pursuing intimacy with God. The church in Acts was pursuing deep koinonia or fellowship with one another. The church was pursuing sacrificial care and generosity towards the world around it. And finally, the church in Acts was marked by bold proclamation. So let's take these one at a time. The church was pursuing deep communion with God. As Pastor Manfred pointed out last week, the church in Acts was devoted to the in intimacy with the Lord. They were pursuing that. And true revival is always marked by the heavy weighty presence of God among his people. The word kavod in Hebrew is actually the word, we think of the word glory, is actually the word heavy. And so there's a heaviness that sets on the people of God when his presence comes. You see this all throughout the story of Scripture, where the weightiness of the prophet Isaiah as he encounters God in his throne room. And the church, the early church, was pursuing an intimate connection with God. So you might wonder, how can you even do that? How can you pursue something only God can give? And we see it right here in this passage, actually. At the very beginning, we see Peter and John setting out to go to the temple for the scheduled daily prayer. They have built it into their routine to go and to connect with God on purpose. 
And so the posture that we should have towards the mission of God is not to sit back and wait and hope things change for us, right? So we shouldn't sit back and say, I wish I could connect with God. I wish I could experience that intimacy again that I felt when I first was saved. No, we're called to make effort and plan that the Spirit can use to change our, our feelings towards the Lord. I remember one time in college, I was, uh, I took it upon myself, I think it was my senior year, and I just said, I decided I wanted to connect more with God. You know, I was a, been a Christian for a couple years, and it was just a season in my life that I really wanted that. And so what I did, it's not hard to figure out how to do this, I decided I would intentionally set aside time in the evenings once a week, and I would go and I would pray alone. So usually it was Friday night, and I would go. I probably did it a half dozen times. I would just go to a spot, spot on the campus where I knew no one was going to be. You know, the, you know, the door was open. It was an empty classroom. And I would just devote 30 minutes or so to praying, to connecting with God. And I look back on those times, and it seems so easy, but it was such a unique time in my life where God was so, had drawn so near to me, and I felt so close to him. And the crazy thing about it is, like, we could all do that, right? You could do it this week. If you wanted to, and if I wanted to, we could carve out in the evening, we could go Friday night, we could go find somewhere, and we could pray for an hour. Um, and we should. There's really nothing stopping us, except that we find reasons not to do it. I know that I do. And sometimes maybe it's not even that we find reasons not to do it, it's that we don't even want to face what we might have to face if we did it, right? The, the things that would come up in our own hearts, the anger, the hurt, the shame, we don't want to look at that. So we pull back from connecting with the Lord. And to challenge myself and to challenge you, I think that the Lord is calling us towards a deeper connection with him. When we look at what the early church was doing and we think about where we are as a church family, the first step that we're called to is connecting with the Lord. That before God wants to work through us and change everyone around us, he wants to work inside of us. He wants to change what's in, what's in our hearts. So step one, we see it in the early church. They had devoted themselves to pursuing God. The next thing we see is that they were pursuing close and a unique, close, intimate communion and community with each other. So they were pursuing intimacy with God, but they were also pursuing a connection with each other. And when you look throughout the history of revival, it's always marked by a season where the normal social barriers fall, right? That people who are not ordinarily together find a way to come together because of what God is doing. And we remember that the miracle at Pentecost was not just that everyone from the 15 or so different ethnicities could all hear the sermon. The other miracles, that they could then make a church together and get along with each other, right? That they could find ways to compromise and love each other despite radical cultural differences. And we're going to see later that this is going to create tension. We're going to see it in Acts chapter 6 in the care of the widows, that when you have the Jews and Gentiles working together, there's some tension there. But the early church faced down the tension and thought it was worth it to be a unique community uh, united under the gospel. So we pursue the Lord. We pursue connecting with one another. And then the, the part we see in this passage most clearly is that they pursued a radical generosity and compassion towards those around them in need. 
I love this quote by uh, one of my old professors, Calvin Miller, that evangelism is the art of looking around, right? Sometimes we overcomplicate things and we just need eyes to see. And we can imagine that Peter and John would have walked the same path over and over and over again from where they were past the beautiful gate to the temple to go pray. And the text makes it clear that this man had been lame from birth and had been brought here over and over and over again to receive alms. And so this is probably not the first time that Peter and John interacted with this guy. Um, and who knows? I mean, Peter says he doesn't have any money this time, but maybe in the past they had given the guy money. Or maybe in the past they were having a bad day and they didn't really want to even make eye contact. I don't know. But this time the Lord moves in their heart. The Spirit makes it clear that they need to pursue a radical generosity toward this man. And the interesting thing, when you read through the story of Acts, every time the apostles perform a miracle, it always causes their own personal suffering. Almost every single time they perform a miracle, they have to suffer for it. So here they're going to get locked up. Uh, later we're going to see Paul do the exact same miracle in chapter 14 that we see right here. And it ends up with him getting stoned, like with rocks, not marijuana, the bad kind. You know, he, he's left for dead outside of a city after being pelted with rocks. And then the next part of his missionary journey, he goes to Philippi and he casts out a demon that's possessing a slave girl. And then he gets locked in the dungeon. Um, so one takeaway is that be skeptical of anyone whose ministry has made them rich and made their life easy. But then the bigger picture here is that we are called, like the apostles, to suffer to relieve suffering. That any real effort to relieve the suffering of those around us is going to cost us some suffering. And, you know, in the first century, there was really no rewards for, for helping a, a crippled man, a lame man. There was no tweet that was going to go viral. They weren't going to get a book deal. They couldn't take a selfie and post it on Instagram. The Lord moved in their heart, and they saw someone in need, and they said, well, they said some unique things. The first thing they said that's unique is that we don't have any money. Um, and you wonder about that because the early church was so generous. It was so shockingly generous under this season of revival that everyone was selling property, sharing with those in need, and you kind of think that Peter and John had already given all their money away. Um, we know that a few weeks earlier, Peter had caught 153 fish, which was a pretty good catch. Presumably, he sold them, but he's already, he's already broke again. And, uh, but then they say something even more compelling, I think. They say, look at us. Look at us. And they look the man right in the eye. And here's an experiment for you. If you want to see how hard this is to do, uh, as you're going home, if you're walking, just find someone and just look them right in the eye. And see how long you can do it for before you both, like, fall apart. It is very unnatural for us to look someone dead in the eye. I'm trying to find someone to look at me. Uh, <laughs> it, something about it exposes us, and it exposes them. And it's too intimate. It's too close. We can't do it. But here, Peter and John say, look at me. Look me in the eye. And they say, silver and gold we don't have, but what I do have, I give to you. And the Lord works this miracle. And remember, miracles aren't like random displays of power like a superhero movie. Uh, miracles and acts are always pointing towards what God's heart is, right? So we can see that God's heart is to, to see the downtrodden lifted up. And he wants, God wants to see people restored 
to their unbroken self. And so miracles then bring the future redemption into the present, right? There's a redemption promised to all of us as Christians, and miracles bring that into the present, whether through healing or anything else. So we see that Peter and John look the man in the eye. They sacrificially care about where he is at, and, uh, and the miracle happens. So number four is they were pursuing bold witness. Bold witness. True revival is marked by simple, unashamed faith. And I love the quote that uh, actually Nigel reminded me of, that uh, sharing our faith is like one beggar telling another where to find bread. That's revival, right? You're, it's so real to you that you almost can't help but just share it with other people. Like, God just changed my life. Can I tell you about that? And we see that the work of uh, intimacy with God and intimacy with each other and sacrificial generosity towards the community really laid the stage for the evangelism that Peter is about to do. A crowd sort of mobs him to hear the gospel message, and 2,000 people become Christians right here. And N.T. Wright made a comment along these lines. He said that evangelism will flourish best when the church gives itself to the work of mercy and beauty, that we become a compelling community, and that really tills the soil of evangelism and creates the fertile ground we're looking for. So Peter's opportunity to proclaim comes from his sacrificial love. And that's often true for us as well, that the moments you have to share your faith will often come out of the sacrificial love that you show that family member or that friend or that coworker. And to be clear, the best thing that could have possibly happened to this man and the best thing for anyone is to be brought into a relationship with Christ. That is what we want for people, right? So we don't think it's, it's not a competition between evangelism and good works. We see the works that God has called us to do as a way of expressing the gospel to others. And then our words come alongside that and tell them how to, to be connected with their Savior. So we see these four marks these four sails of the early church, what they are pursuing. And uniquely here, the Spirit enables their pursuit and miraculous things happen and 5,000 people become Christians and two sermons. That's pretty good for Peter. Um, and then I think that this leaves us with two questions here to kind of start wrapping things up. Two questions. The first question is, could God do this again? Could God do this again? And... It's interesting because we know we're not called to live in a constant state of revival. Even in the story of Acts, pretty soon, like in a couple chapters, we're going to see the problem start setting in, right? Reality hits. And just, just like us, the, the churches have all sorts of problems that come up throughout the story. And yet, throughout church history, God has moved in power over and over again. And we know he's going to keep doing it. In fact, he's probably doing it right now in a part of the global church that we don't even know about. And on top of that, every conversion is a mini-revival. If anyone's eyes are open to see, a mini-revival is already happening. So the Spirit is doing this all the time. And again, we're not called to pursue the effects of revival. We're called to pursue the mission of God. The great thing about Jeremy Lamb Lanfiere that I was telling you about at the beginning who started the revival in New York City is that after the revival is over, you know what he did every day? 
He had a prayer meeting for 50 people. It was back to normal. And on he went, faithful throughout his life. Back to the ordinary means of grace. So we should pray for revival, but we know that God's calling us to do things now, and we're not called to wait. The second question is, what about miracles? Can we expect miracles like we see in the book of Acts? Well, if the question is, can God still do miracles, that's an easy question, because of course God can still do miracles. But the harder question is, why does he seem to do so many here and so little uh, now, especially where we are? And can and does he still do them around the world? And I think the answer is that he does, but remember, the purpose of the miracles and acts was to substantiate the beginning of the church. And as the church takes root, we see as the story continues, there are less and less and less miraculous events. Until by the last few chapters of Acts, they've almost totally stopped. And then we can even read at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, he says this. He says, I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. And you're like, wait a second, Paul. Why don't you just heal Trophimus and carry on? And uh, the reason is because not even the apostles had permanent access to these miraculous signs. I heard a pastor once say, and I, I like the way he put it, he said that the Spirit is most at work on the frontiers of the mission of God. And perhaps that's why most of the stories we hear about the miraculous or miracles taking place are often from our missionaries, right? The, where, where the church is breaking into new, uh, new places, the Spirit shows up in power. And as the church settles into a place, God works through the ordinary means of grace, usually to bring about his kingdom. All right, to summarize here, we see the church in Acts was pursuing intimacy with God, intimacy with each other, sacrificial giving and care, and then bold proclamation. And then we look at us. We think about where are we as a church? What season are we in? And what are we called to do? And I think the refreshing thing about this is that we don't have to be super creative, right? That we don't have to have a unique call of the Lord, although we can. Because no matter what, we are called as a church to pursue these things every day. We don't, God has made this clear in his word. This is where the church is heading. Our ship is heading in the mission of God. Our sails are up and we're praying for wind. We're praying for God to work. That's where God has us. All right, as we turn towards the table, I want to share a story of uh, my favorite revival in the Bible. And I'm going to go ahead and invite the band up as we get ready to take communion. But my favorite story of revival in the Bible, which I think is really relevant for us, is the story in Nehemiah chapter 8. And at this point in the letter of Nehemiah, in the story of Nehemiah, the people of God had just survived a very intense ordeal. They had spent, they needed constant vigilance for weeks and weeks and months and months where they were working to rebuild the walls around the city, right? So they had to guard the walls and work all day and be afraid at night. And they made it to the end, but you can tell as you read the story here, they're, they're pretty wiped. They're pretty out of gas. And maybe that sounds familiar to some of you. Maybe some of you, as we reach the end of 2020 into 2021, 
We, we are here physically, but man, we are emotionally worn out. We are worn down. We feel totally out of gas. Does anybody, can anybody feel that besides me? Uh, and I know even talking to our home group leaders, they're just so tired from uh, caring about people for the course of this entire year and suffering and grieving and, uh, you know, having your kids at home for some of us and just the hardships at work, the hardships with family, not seeing extended family. We're all worn down. And so the people of Nehemiah, they finish the wall and they, they celebrate. And uh, you can see it in chapter 8. I'm going to read from verses 9 through 12. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, for, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So we have this big worship service at the end of the rebuilding of the walls, and Ezra gets up, and it's like a seven-day revival where he's preaching every day, and there's people out in the crowds explaining it. And the reaction of the crowds, the first reaction, which is understandable, they all just fall apart. They all just fall, in, like they weep, they cry, they're exhausted. But then the message, I think, is a message for us, that revival is not a season of shame. Revival is not a season of regret. Revival is a season of joy. And so the message in Nehemiah from Ezra is that eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so as we turn towards communion this morning, remember that communion is both a sign of and a time of remembrance, but it's also a time of celebration. That as we prepare to receive the elements this morning, remember that the joy of the Lord is your strength. So I'm going to distribute the elements to the band. They're going to lead us in a short time of reflection, and then we'll regather to participate.